I invite you to follow along the reading of this morning's sermon text from Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, there are Bibles available in each of the pew recs which you can use. Romans 12, beginning at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This morning we will begin to answer the last question on this uh, series concerning Christian hope that we've been into now for, I think, 13 weeks or so. We've asked four questions so far. The first question was, what's the definition of Christian hope? And we said uh, the definition of Christian hope is that it is a confident expectation of good things to come. And then we asked, what's the ground of Christian hope? And we answered that the ground of Christian hope is the sovereign grace of God and the gospel that Jesus died for sinners. And then we asked, what's the cause of Christian hope? That is, what brings it about in the heart of a sinner like me? And we answered first, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the work of God in regeneration, and secondly, the Word of God in the Scriptures, especially the promises of God. And then the fourth question we asked was, what is hope? That is, what are we hoping for? What's the content of our hope? And we answered, we are hoping for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are hoping for the redemption of our bodies so that they won't get sick anymore, but they'll be new forever. We're hoping for the uh, consummation of our righteousness so that we won't struggle with sin anymore. We're hoping for the share that we will have in the glory of God when we see Him face to face. And we're hoping for the inheritance of eternal life. And so there's just one more question to be asked. Does this hope change anything in life? 
Does it produce anything in day-to-day living? And we're going to spend four Sundays in July answering that question. Picture hope. Let me, let me try to sum it up again so you can tell where we're going in these last four Sundays with a picture. Picture hope as a tree. There's ground. There's ground here in which this tree is growing in. The ground is the grace of God and the gospel that Jesus died for sinners. Then there is a, a germination, a sprouting of this tree. That's new birth. That's regeneration. Then there's nutriment that is going up into this tree, making it strong and stable and sustaining it. And that's the word of God, the promises of God. And then there's the trunk and the strong branches of this tree with fibers. And the the fibers of this strong wood are the confident expectation that we're going to see Jesus face to face. We are going to have new bodies. We are going to be overcoming sin completely someday. We are going to share in the glory of God. We are going to inherit eternal life. That's the tree of hope, strong and firm. And so the one last question to ask is, do these branches bear any fruit? Does any fruit come out on the branches of the tree of hope? And the resounding answer of the New Testament is yes. And I've selected four of these to talk about through the hot months of July, or the hot weeks of July. Number one, hope bears the fruit of joy. Number two, hope bears the fruit of love. Number three, hope bears the fruit of boldness. And number four, hope bears the fruit of endurance. There are texts in the New Testament that teach those four things very plainly. In other words, you and I will never have Christian joy, love, boldness, or hope if we do not hope, what did I say on the last one? Endurance. If we do not hope in God. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who have a kind of joy and a kind of of uh, love and boldness and endurance who don't hope in God. But that is no evidence of new birth and it is no spiritual or eternal reality and of no value in God's sight. And I'll try to make plain this morning and each Sunday how the... Joy and love and boldness and endurance are peculiarly Christian and grow out of Christian hope. So this morning, the text is Romans chapter 12, verse 12, the first phrase. Rejoice in hope. Or we could paraphrase it, let your joy be the kind of joy that comes from hope. Or we could say, bear the fruit of joy in the branch of hope. Or we could say, be glad because you have hope. So you see, don't you, the connection between hope and joy in the first phrase of Romans 12, verse 12. Now I want to unpack that little phrase 
in the next 25 minutes or so and ask three questions in the process. Question number one, what is Christian joy? We're going to pass over what is Christian hope because we've been talking about it for 13 weeks. But now what is Christian joy? Second, can this joy be commanded by God? Third, if so, how does one obey the command to rejoice? Question number one, what is Christian joy? And you know as well as I that it is very hard to put emotional experiences into words. That's why people write poems and paint paintings and sing songs. and We grasp for ways to express things that defy Expression, and it is generally emotional things that defy verbal expression. But I want to try, anyway, pointing you at least towards what genuine Christian joy is. And the way I want to try to do it is by developing three contrasts. Three things that Christian joy is not, and three things that Christian joy is. Okay? Contrast number one. Christian joy is not an act of willpower, but it is a spontaneous emotional response of the heart. Christian joy is not an act of willpower. It is a spontaneous emotional response of the heart. And in this It's the same as non-Christian joy. When Peter speaks in chapter 1, verse 9, and says, We rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. He is not describing a decision. He's describing an explosion. You can decide to brush your teeth, get an allergy shot. You cannot decide to rejoice in the same way. You can decide to do things that might bring about joy. Take a drive in the country, visit a friend, read a psalm. But whether or not joy happens in any of those cases, you do not control. You can make preparations for joy. You can raise your sails in New York Harbor. You can't make the wind blow. The Spirit blows where He wills, and joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So contrast number one is, Christian joy is not an act of willpower. It is a spontaneous emotional response of the heart. In other words, it's real. Second contrast, Christian joy is not superficial and flimsy, it is deep and firm. 
Christian joy is not superficial and flimsy. It is deep and firm. This is why people often make distinctions between Christian joy and happiness or pleasure. They say, we should have joy, not happiness. Well, be careful here. It's true, there is a superficial and flimsy happiness and there is a superficial and flimsy pleasure. But the Bible says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. That pleasure and that happiness are not superficial and flimsy. So be careful you don't write off words that the Bible has used. There is a joy, a happiness, a pleasure, a delight that are deep and firm and not superficial and flimsy. The reason we know that this is so is because the Bible teaches very plainly in numerous places that Christian joy flourishes right in the midst of suffering. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you receive the word in much affliction with joy from the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 8.2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality. Well, that's a very strange emotion that flourishes right in the middle of suffering. It is deep and it is firm. But more than that, Paul says something else. Not only does Christian joy flourish in the midst of suffering, It flourishes in the midst of sorrowing, which seems to be the very opposite of joy. In other words, not merely when objective tribulation is coming against you does joy flourish, but when subjective sorrow is racking your heart, there can be Christian joy. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I'll say it again. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. The wonder, the strangeness, the beauty of this thing called Christian joy is that it flourishes right in the midst of suffering and sorrow. And that's what I'm trying to get at when I say it is not flimsy or superficial. It is deep and it is firm. And most of you have tasted it, I'm sure. I did and have. When my mother died in 1974, was killed in a bus accident. I got that phone call and I knelt beside my bed for I don't know how long it was. I've never cried so long in my life, I'm sure. But it wasn't a crying as those who have no hope. It was heaving. It was sobbing. It was real, live, heart-wrenching crying. 
But I like to use the analogy that my life is like a sea and there was much turbulence and upheaval on the surface of the ocean, but the currents of the sea never changed. The current of the sea is that God reigns. He controls the flight of a 4 by 4 on the top of a VW van that smashes through the windshield of a bus. He reigns. And he is good. And I believe with all my heart, joy was, was unbroken in that hour of weeping. But we sang at the funeral. We filled up an auditorium by twice this size with all my mother's friends. And we sang, like a river glorious is God's perfect peace, over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect, yet it floweth fuller every day. Perfect, yet it groweth deeper all the way. That's what I mean. Christian joy is not superficial or flimsy. It is deep, firm, and unshakable. And the third contrast to try to get at what Christian joy is, is this. Christian joy is not natural. It is spiritual. It is not natural It is spiritual. Now, in the New Testament, when anything is called spiritual, it means from the Holy Spirit and having the character of the Spirit. Beware lest you make the mistake of picking up the word spiritual from the way it's used in secular language and saying spiritual is anything that has to do with the spirit of man. So that things that are unseen, love, joy, peace, whatever, that's spiritual, whereas pulpits, paper, Bibles, skin, clothes, that's all natural. No, that's not biblical language. You can use it that way if you want, but don't claim to be speaking biblically at that point. Biblically, spiritual means born or coming from the Spirit and having the character of the Spirit. For example, pride is natural, according to biblical language, but it's a thing of my spirit. Envy comes from my spirit, but it is natural. And so it is with anger, jealousy, strife, self-pity, resentment, bitterness, covetousness, hatred, selfishness. These are what come from my spirit, but they are not spiritual. They are natural, which simply means they come from what I am by nature. That's me. When we call pride and covetousness and vainglory natural, what we mean is I didn't need the Holy Spirit to help me produce those. They came right out of my heart because that's what I am, sinner through and through. What is spiritual is what we produce not from our sinful heart, but by the agency of the Holy Spirit. So when I call 
Christian joy spiritual, not natural. What I mean is, is that, well, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not a fruit of John Piper. If I ever delight in God, you can be sure it didn't come from what I am by nature. By nature, I love money. I love sex. I love power. I love praise. I love food. I don't love God. If I ever love God, it's because the Holy Spirit is at work in me. And you. Joy that is Christian, that is focused on God, is joy that comes from the Spirit and has the character of the Spirit. I get that last point from teachings like this. Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you. Interesting, isn't it? The joy that is in me is Jesus' joy. In other words, it has the character of Jesus about it. Jesus loves God. Jesus delights in God. I want to talk tonight at the communion table about what makes Jesus delighted. So we'll pick up here. But when he says, my joy in you, he means you don't just get your joy from the Holy Spirit. When you get it, it's mine. When you delight in God, it's my delighting in God in you. So the two things that make a joy spiritual are that they come from the Spirit and that they have the character of God about them. And so there are three contrasts that point towards what Christian joy is. One, Christian joy is not an act of willpower. It is a spontaneous emotional response of the heart. Secondly, Christian joy is not superficial and flimsy. It is deep and firm. And third, Christian joy is not natural. It didn't come from me. It is spiritual. It came from the Holy Spirit. Now, that was the first question. What is joy? The second question is, can this joy be commanded? Can this joy be commanded? You see, there are a lot of people who think it can't be. If joy is not an act of my willpower, but rather a spontaneous response of my heart, and if joy does not come from resources that are natural to me as a fallen sinner, but only a fruit of the Holy Spirit, how can God command it of me? Can God command joy? He can, and He does, in many places in Scripture. Matthew 5.12 Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord. Again I say, rejoice. Romans 12.12, right here in our text. If you have a New American Standard or a King James, it's a participle, literally, rejoicing in hope. But you can tell from the context, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, 
This is something I am obliged to do. This is an obligation. It is right to translate this. Rejoice in hope or be glad in hope. And you can just drop down three verses to verse 15 and see that every translation translates it as an imperative. In this verse, rejoice with those who rejoice. It's a duty. It's a command. Now, how can God do that? Why is it right for God to command me to rejoice? Two reasons. One, because I ought to rejoice in God. He's worthy. He is infinitely worthy of being delighted in by his creatures. Therefore, he has a right to tell me to do what I ought to do. And secondly, the only thing standing between the command to rejoice and the obedience of joy is my wicked heart. A wicked heart that delights more in praise from men and in money and in power and in family and prestige and vacations than it does in God. And if you approach God on the judgment day and try to excuse yourself from delighting in Him by saying, I couldn't delight in you, I'm a sinner. It's going to backfire. He'll say, that's right. Depart from me. I never knew you. Your own words will bear witness to your condemnation. Righteousness does not cease to be a duty because I'm wicked. The answer is God can and he does demand that we be born again, that we get a new heart, and that we delight in him above all things. Third, the last question is, how can we obey this commandment? And since the text says, rejoice in hope, rejoice by hope, let hope be the means of your rejoicing or the source of your joy, we should ask, how does hope figure into obedience? And since we've also said, hope is or joy is a fruit of the Spirit, now we have to ask, how these three things relate. We have joy, we have hope, and we have the work of the Holy Spirit. How do those three things relate? If you put all that together, how does it work to bring about joy in our heart? Well, in the book of Romans, there are two texts where those three things are brought together and explained in relationship to each other. We don't have time to look at both of them, the one that we will not look at, I'm going to use as a benediction this morning at the end, Romans 15, 13. The one that we will look at, and I invite you to turn to it with me, is Romans 5, verses 2 through 5. Romans 5, 2 through 5, and as I read it, I want you to ask yourself and try to answer the question, how do hope and joy and the Holy Spirit work together to bring about joy? 
my heart. Through him, that is through Christ, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Now let's think about the flow of the thought here for a moment. Verse 2, just a beautiful exemplification of the command in chapter 12, verse 12. In chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says, rejoice in hope. And in verse 2, he says, we are rejoicing in hope. It's just an example of doing what we ought to do. Hope is the source of joy. But then he goes on and he says something startling. He says, and we rejoice in suffering. Well, now how in the world can that be? And he answers the question for us. He says, I hope in suffering because suffering is is just hope producing. Because I only joy in hope. If suffering didn't produce hope, I wouldn't joy in suffering. Just follow his train of thought. He says, because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And that makes me joyful. It's hope that gives me my joy. Matthew Henry says, The joy and peace of believers arises chiefly from their hopes. What is laid out upon them is but little, but what is compared up, uh, what is laid up for them is much. Therefore, the more hope they have, the more joy they have. Christians should desire and labor after an abundance of hope. But how does hope and joy relate to the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit? And that's what verse 5 is about. It says, Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. In other words, beneath hope, this is hope, And here underneath it, beneath hope, as a foundation, a mighty rock, is the love of God that keeps hope from being disappointed. Hope would be disappointed and leave us ashamed of our hope if there were nothing supporting it. And he says, it's the love of God that supports our hope. And then the work of the Holy Spirit is explained like this. The love of God is poured into our hearts. Now, what does that mean? I think it means by the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to see and grasp and cherish the love of God. There are a lot of people who've heard messages about the love of God for 50 years. They don't give a hoot about the love of God. It's never moved them one inch towards obedience. But when the Holy Spirit is poured out into a heart and the love of God by the Holy Spirit's coming fills the bucket of my soul and overflows, it just drains all over me and fills me with a knowledge and a sense and a feeling 
and a cherishing of the love of God so that I know my hopes are on a rock. So now I think we're in a position to put the pieces together from this text. Let's start at the bottom, the foundation. The love of God, it chose me. It called me. It begot me anew. It sustains my faith. Jesus, keep me trusting, trusting. And it will bring me to glory. I owe everything to the love of God for repentant sinners. And then the Holy Spirit, secondly, does a work. He takes that objective love of God shown at Calvary and he pours it into my heart so that I start to feel it, know it, see it, experience it, be governed by it. And a tree grows up out of this great, massive ground of love, a tree called hope. And the fibers of that tree we've talked about of hope in Christ and for a new body and for freedom from sin and for the glory of God. And then on the branches of that hope, there grows fruit, joy, and love, and boldness, and endurance. So let me close by asking the question one more time and answering it as practically as I know how. How do you obey the command, rejoice in hope? Four steps. Number one, let's admit that we are corrupt sinners who by our own inclinations do not love God, have no delight in God, but only go after the world and all that it can offer. Let's admit it, we are helpless to become the kind of people who can delight in God rather than money. That's step number one. If we don't admit it, I doubt that we'll ever be changed. Second, cry to God that He will pour the Holy Spirit into your heart and awaken you to the reality and the beauty and the power of the love of God for repentant sinners. This is what the benediction is going to say. Romans 15, 13. O God of hope, fill me with joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit I might abound in hope. So the second step, once you've admitted that you are helpless and sinful, is to cry to God, for the touch of the Holy Spirit to awaken you to His love and to fill you with it. And third, direct the attention of your mind to expressions of God's love in the testimony of Scripture. For example, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No! 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as your mind focuses on grand truths like that, and as the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into your heart, fourthly, rejoice in your hope. And again I say, Rejoice, shall we pray. Oh God, we draw this worship service to a close now on a sober and serious note, though it has been about joy and hope. And we do it because we are sinners And we are so prone to delight in other things like food, money, advancement, family, leisure, sports, than we are to delight in you. And we need forgiveness and cleansing and changing. We need the touch of your Holy Spirit, O God. And I pray that you would send it, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that you would convict people of idolatry, that you would grant, O God, that our sins would come alive, that we would feel them, and therefore plead with you for forgiveness and for the infilling of your Holy Spirit to awaken us of your love, which is unending and all-sufficient for forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that out of this love there would grow a mighty oak of hope and that before this holy Lord's day is done, everyone in this room would be experiencing the fruit on the branches of hope, which is the joy of the Lord. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe the promises that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. And all the people said, Amen.